you have a Bible, would you take it and turn to Isaiah chapter 29? And as you turn there, I, I pray you turn with expectation to hear from God, that this is his word to us, and it comes, sometimes it's a little confusing, but that it is also clear, and that he longs for us to see and to understand it. We will be reading all of Isaiah 29 throughout the sermon. I'm not going to read it in one fell swoop. We'll read it in some sections and then talk about it, which um, usually we read it all together. So I just wanted to give you a heads up. Uh, Isaiah 28, which we studied last week, and Isaiah 29, which is our text this week, contain the first three woes in a series of six woes, W-O-E. These are six emotionally charged summons. Six calls for Judah to come before the Lord at his bar of judgment. I'm not sure if you've ever received a subpoena to appear in court. I won't ask for anyone to raise their hands and let me know if they have. But even if you've never received one, you probably know what one is. And that's in some ways what Isaiah's words are communicating. That God is requiring his people to come before his court and to face his justice. Specifically, the, the priests and the prophets are being called to face the consequences for their failure as leaders in Judah. A commentator, Barry Webb, says this, These two chapters, chapter 28 and 29, are full of scorn for the leaders who have been too arrogant and self-indulgent to heed the warnings that God gave through people like Isaiah. You'll hopefully remember that chapter 28 from last week focused on the, the judgment of these leaders for their refusal to hear the word of the Lord. And now chapter 29 turns to consider what the Lord must do to awaken Judah's leaders from their selfish slumber. What is God going to do to change them? As we saw at the end of chapter 28, the Lord is, is wise in his ways. Like a good farmer, he knows when to furrow the field and he knows when to stop. He knows when to plant, and he also knows how to reap a harvest. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. So he knows how to deal with his people. And what we find here is him acting in judgment and transformation. I think those are two key words you might jot down, judgment and transformation. He acts with justice and merciful redemption. Now, as we think about God's work amongst his people in Isaiah nearly 3,000 years ago, we, we may think that this chapter is far removed from us. But we know that God's ways are, are consistent in part because the human heart is consistent in its weakness and in its rebellion. And so we can look at this ancient book of, and see how God works, and we can rightly ask, what will the Lord do to awaken us? How does God work in similar ways to reveal his arm of judgment and his arm of transformation to us? How does he work to show his, his work of justice and his work of redemption? And can he change us? Can he change us into his holy and unique people in this world? Now, if you look at Jerusalem and you look at Jerusalem's leaders in this book, you, you might wonder if change was even possible. And if we're honest, we might also look at ourselves and wonder if change is ever possible. Can the Lord change us, or are we just a lost cause? Well, I think the Lord has a plan, 
And as we walk through this, this chapter, we're going to see that this plan is, is made up of the disaster that God's going to bring on his people, the gracious deliverance that he's going to provide for his people, the deep heart work that he's going to perform on his people, and this dramatic future that he lays out for his people. And in light of this surprising and wonderful plan enacted by God, by the God of wisdom and counsel, we can trust that God has a plan to transform us into his likeness. That's the call. Trust this. Trust that God has a plan. Trust that God has a plan to transform us into his likeness. Trust that God has a plan to transform us into his likeness and assumed in that is, is that it's actually gonna work, that it's a good plan. When you want to doubt God's ability to change you as his child, when you're tempted to, to doubt his ability to change his people as a whole, step back and see this plan and trust him. Trust that God has a plan to transform us into his likeness. The plan may be surprising, and it may actually be a plan that we don't really want or desire, but we can trust his power, we can trust his plan, we can trust his wisdom, and we can trust his love for us as he shapes us into his people. So what's the plan? How, how is God going to transform Jerusalem? And by extension, how does he transform us? We begin in, in verses one through four, seeing that he's going to transform his people by bringing disaster on his people. How does God bring transformation? By bringing disaster on his people. Look at Isaiah 29, verses one through four. Ah, or woe, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped, add year to year, let the feasts run their round. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there shall be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like an Ariel. And I will encamp against you all around and will besiege you with towers, and I will raise siege works against you, and you will be brought low. For the earth, from the earth you shall speak, and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost, and from the dust your speech shall whisper. How's, gonna God, how's God going to transform his people? By bringing disaster on his people. As you read that, you might be confused by the name Ariel. You might think about the little, mer little Mermaid. That's the first thing I thought of when I saw it. But in these eight verses, uh, it, it's, it's only in verse 8 that we actually find that Isaiah, in using this name Ariel, is referring to the city of Jerusalem. He's referring to Mount Zion. It's not a historic name for Jerusalem. It's nowhere else, really. Um, so it seems to be one that, that Isaiah came up with by the Lord's inspiration. And why is he calling this city, the city of Jerusalem, Ariel? Well, the word Ariel means altar hearth. It refers to a, a place of sacrifice, to the place where God's judgment was poured out and where it was satisfied. Of course, the offering of sacrifices was centered in Jerusalem at the temple. That was where the altar was, and that was where the feasts were all celebrated. And out of the cycle of feasts that's mentioned there in, in verse 1, these, these feasts and sacrifices that the people of Judah were continuing to practice, out of the midst of that, the city of Jerusalem is told that they are not only the place where sacrifices are made, but they are also the place where God's fires of judgment are going to come. They're going to come on Jerusalem. 
and they would come in the form of an invading army that would lay siege to the city and bring it down to the dust. God would transform his faithful people. How? By judging them. Of this altar hearth image, Alec Motyer says, it was the privilege and the peril of Zion to live in the presence of this fire, alike a danger to sinners and the means of their salvation. Think about Isaiah 6. As a title, Ariel holds together the two sides of the relationship between the Lord and his people, both holy wrath and preserving favor. It's the tension we should live in. I wonder if we do. This tension as God's people that that while we know the Lord's preserving favor, we also know his holy wrath. As people called by his name through Jesus, we are deeply loved and we are called to deep devotion. Again, like Isaiah in chapter 6, we are undone by the sight of God's holiness, but we are also cleansed by him and we are brought near by his favor. Jerusalem, for all their sacrifices, for all the feasts, they had somehow neglected to remember that our God is a consuming fire and therefore his judgment was coming on them to remind them. And yet, if you look at verse 4, it seems to indicate that the threat of God's judgment humbled them but it did not destroy them. That, that in God's grace, they felt the heat of his wrath. They were laid in the dust. They were only able to whisper from the ground like a ghost, but they also felt the cool breeze of his preserving favor that arrived in a last-minute deliverance. We're going to see that in Isaiah 36 and 37, which forms the background, I think, to this chapter. But in this wider picture, though, we see that, that God transforms his, pe- transforms his people not only by bringing disaster on them, but by accomplishing deliverance for his people. How does God transform us? By accomplishing deliverance for his people. First, bringing disaster. Second, accomplishing deliverance. Notice the shift that happens in verses 5 through 8 as God's judgment now comes on those who were attacking Jerusalem, not Jerusalem. Verse 5, but the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the ruthless like passing chaff. And in an instant, suddenly you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire, and the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her, shall be like a dream, a vision of the night. As when a hungry man dreams, and behold, he is eating, and awakes with his hunger not satisfied. Or as when a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he is drinking, and awakes faint with his thirst not quenched. So shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. We're left with this picture of God's people in the dust in verse 4, but then we see that God turns their enemies to dust in verse 5. Again, this probably refers to Isaiah 37 when disaster seemed to be a foregone conclusion, but the Lord in an instant at the last moment suddenly came and rescued his people from the very foe that he had sent against them. Isaiah says in verses 7 and 8 that the nations could almost taste victory. It, it, was, like, it, was, it, was, it was so real to them. It, it was like a dream that you wake up from. You ever have a dream so real and you wake up and you have to convince yourself that it actually didn't happen? That's what these, they, they thought that victory was there. They, they awoke and they thought they had feasted and, and drank their fill only to find that they were still hungry and they were still thirsty. And rather than rejoicing in victory, 
the enemies of God were shaking now before the thunder and the earthquake, the tempest and the tornado, the devouring fire of God's judgment. The tables had completely turned. Truly, as Isaiah 28, 21 says, how strange and alien God's work is. That, that he calls a foreign nation to judge his people and then in the last minute saves his people and judges the nation that he called to judge his people. And yet still, he, he is wonderful in counsel. He's excellent in wisdom, if we, even if we don't understand what he's doing. And we can trust even when the hour grows late, even when all hope seems lost, when we are mocked and ridiculed for simply trusting that he will deliver us, even then we can keep trusting when we imagine that we're too far gone, when we think that nothing can change, when we're convinced that we ourselves or that the church is a lost cause to stand for God's holiness and mercy in this world. Even then, we have to hold the line. We have to trust and we have to believe. We have to keep the faith and know that the Lord fights for his people, that he can and he will transform us into his likeness. So the Lord saved the skin of his people but the harsh reality was that their hearts were in fact still very far from him. He rescued them, but their hearts were still far. Like Pharaoh, who seemed to so genuinely repent as he asked for Moses to pray that God would deliver Egypt from the ten plagues, only to harden his heart when the trouble had passed. So too, God's people forgot their God when their destruction was no longer imminent. And God will not stand for that kind of surface and fickle transformation. And so now we get to this real work that only God can do because he changes us and he transforms us not only through disaster on us and not only deliverance for us, but also by working deeply in his people's hearts. How does God transform us? By a deep work, by working deeply in our hearts. Verses 9 through 14 Look at verse 9. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, the prophets, and covered your heads, the seers. And the vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. When men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and the fear, their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Humbled by disaster and delivered by God's power, there's still a work that needs to be done in the leaders of Judah. Because while delivered, they, they are hesitating to trust the Lord. They, re they remained blind and drunk as individuals, and those who should have been helping the people see, the prophets and the seers, are also drunk and blind. The, the vision and the warning is said to be like a sealed book because of their hard hearts and the leaders can't open it and they can't read it. The ones who are supposed to speak openly, the, the prophets can't prophesy. The, the ones who are supposed to understand, the, the seers, they, they, can't, they can't read. 
because they're so dull to God's word. But what they're good at is continually re- continuing their religious observance. They're good at going to church. They, they can make the sacrifices. They can keep the feasts. They arrive at the temple when they're supposed to. They can say all the right things. But the Lord says, it doesn't matter because your hearts are so far from me. And so they miss the deep work that God wants to do in them and through them. Of course, that hits home, doesn't it? Might, might we too miss God's revolutionary word for we, his people, because we're so focused on keeping our streak of faithful but false religion? External acts, religious observance, faithfulness in church attendance, saying the right things, keeping the right practices. These are all good, but there are no guarantee of godly leadership or true devotion to Christ in any of us. And even in the light of God's fiery judgment and his miraculous deliverance, we are still tempted towards just keeping rules rather than actually being changed by the living God. We stick with what we know. And we miss the transforming power of God's word. Why? Why would we do that? I'll give you three reasons. Because deep heart work is hard work. (laughs) It's easy to do religious observance. It's easy once you get the hang of it. But deep heart work is hard work. Religious observance can become very routine. And you don't even realize you're doing it. It's so simple. In one sense, there's actually a beauty to that because there's power in habit, but, but those habits are meant to, to engage and to change our hearts. Reading scripture, attending church, caring for others, that's not an end in and of itself. It's a means of drawing our hearts to the Father, causing us to trust him more and more and look like him more and more. And so we have to engage in these practices, asking that, that God would change and shape us and reveal our needs, which means... That deep heart heart work is not just hard work that we have to work at, but it's also scary work. Deep heart work is scary work. What do I mean by that? Well, I think if we're to understand who we are in light of who God is, we are forced to deal with the kinds of things in our hearts that we often do our best to ignore. We have to deal with, with past wounds that keep us from opening up to the Father or to others. We have to confess our sins and our struggles to others, knowing that change only comes in true and deep community. We have to move from pointing fingers at people who fail in their external religion and instead be ruthlessly, ruthlessly and painfully honest with our own failures to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that's hard, and that's scary, because we start to see our own hypocrisy. All of this helps us to see that ultimately, the third reason this is hard is because deep heart work is God's work. Heart work, deep heart work, is God's work. After diagnosing the the root of the problem in verse 13, that they... Their hearts are far from the Lord. God says in verse 14 that the solution is for him to do a wonderful and an astonishing work that would humble his people and cause them to see their need, not of a new law, but of a new heart. It wouldn't be a pleasant work. It wouldn't be an easy work. Just as a real heart transplant is not painless or simple. And so the work is hard. 
And the work is scary. But ultimately, while it will be somewhat painful for us, we are not the ones who bear the pain. Because this is a work that God has to do. And God's going to feel the pain of seeing us transformed. Are you starting to see the gospel in Isaiah 29? Let me spell it out for you. The chapter begins with a threat of judgment on us for our sin. The forces of death and hell are laying their siege works against the walls of our lives and we are laid to the dust. We are humiliated by our sin and by our complete inability to save ourselves from all of our enemies. We are as good as dead. We are like ghosts whispering in the dust. And then the Lord comes. The Lord comes. How? Because Jesus arrives. Jesus arrives and we start to see God's kingdom breaking out here on earth in his ministry. But then in the 11th hour, as Jesus hangs on the cross, it looks like all the hopes of God's people are being literally crushed. But in fact, the opposite has happened because he is being crushed. Why? For our sins. And Satan awakes from his dream of victory to find that it's gone as Jesus rises from the dead. Because death doesn't swallow us. Rather, it's swallowed up by Christ's victory. And as he comes to us as the resurrected Lord, he's not asking for us to keep laws anymore, is he? He's coming after our hearts. He is fulfilling the new covenant. He's, he's removing our heart of stone, and that's hard and scary, but he's doing it so that, so that we would not just be about keeping rules. He's given us a heart of flesh so that we can draw near to him and that we can walk in his ways and we can truly hear his word and love it and follow after him. Do you see how God brings transformation? He reveals the disaster that sin, sin brings and then through, he delivers us in the 11th hour and then he works deeply in our hearts to completely and radically change us at the core of who we are. He makes us new. So think about the gospel in this first woe. Trust that God has a plan to transform us into his likeness. And the plan is that we would admit that God alone can accomplish this transformation. That God alone can, can save us and God alone can transform our hearts. And that transformation then infiltrates who we are that we are continually humbled by our sin throughout our whole lives, that we're continually delivered by God's grace through our whole lives and continually changed more and more into the likeness of Jesus through the deep heart work that God is always doing in us through his spirit. God works the same way in us now through the gospel that he did in his people in Isaiah 29. To trust that, that God has a, we need to trust that God has a plan to transform us into his likeness. And to trust that is to trust that Jesus is our Savior and our Lord and to never cease letting him press our hearts into the mold that he has laid out for us. It's to allow Christ to shape and to fashion us in his likeness like a potter shapes clay on the wheel. The, the depth of of, of what God's doing, the results of God's transform, transforming his people's hearts is revealed even more in verses 15 through 24. And we're reminded, I think, in these words, not only what the transformation is going to look like, but also that our transformation then leads to us imaging our Savior in the world. And so God actually brings people into his family. God transforms more people 
into his likeness by transforming the world through his people. How is God going to change us? How is God going to change others? This is the fourth thought, by transforming the world through his people. In verses 15 through 24, and we're going to go fast, Isaiah, in this section, it, he, he zeroes in on the, the sins of Judah's leaders and he shows that there were days coming when instead of their common sins, instead of spiritual pride, instead of disregard for the poor, instead of ignoring the cries for justice, instead of false worship, God's people would be this new Jerusalem, this city on a hill as Jesus calls it. And what we know is that this vision for what's coming is ultimately going to be, at the, is going to be in its fullness at the return of Christ, but we also know that because of Jesus' first coming, and because of his work to transform our hearts, and because if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the Spirit of God, the very Spirit of God living in you, therefore we can transform the world by walking in the ways of God's kingdom. Not fully, it's gonna come when Christ comes, but there are moments now where we can transform the world through walking in his ways, through walking by faith. Now. The, the problem with rejecting the Lord and refusing to hear his word is that it turns things upside down. The, the world is not right side up right now. It's, it's the opposite. That's what verses 15 and 16 say. Woe, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, and who say, who sees us, who knows us? You turn things upside down. So the potter be regarded as the clay, that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed, say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. It's a funny picture. It's a picture of a pot on a potter's wheel looking at the potter saying, hey, why'd you make me like this? You don't understand what you're doing. It's comical. But that's the pride of people like us who tell God how things should be instead of listening to his word. We who have been transformed by God's word see this folly and we don't want to walk in that way. We want to listen to God's word. And so what's it going to look like if we're transformed? What's it going to look like if we're following God truly from the heart? What's a right side up world going to look like? Six results of being transformed by God through faith in Christ as Isaiah looks to the future. Six results, maybe in six minutes, if you could believe it. We're going to go fast. First result, fruitfulness fruitfulness. Verse 17, is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? God's world is meant to be a garden. And when God's people are transforming their hearts, it brings life and flourishing and health to every corner of the world and to every person in it. That's what transformation looks like, fruitfulness in this world. The transformation will also look like number two, hearing ears and seeing eyes. Don't all ears hear and don't all eyes see? No. Because verse 18, in that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of the glo their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. Unlike those we've been reading about up to this point who were blind and drunk and illiterate, God's transforming grace draws people out of darkness, out of the darkness of rebellion, and lets them see that God's word is light and life, and it's sweeter than honey. We have hearing ears and seeing eyes. The transformation in the world through God's people will look like joy to the rejected. Number three, joy to the rejected. Verse 19, 
The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. What's God's kingdom look like in the world? It means that those dismissed by people of power, the meek and the poor, are going to be filled with joy and worship. Sounds like the Beatitudes, doesn't it? The world is set right, not when the meek are, are put down, but rather when the meek are exalted and the proud are brought low. That's what the kingdom looks like. That's what we're seeking. Transformation looks like fruitfulness. It looks like hearing ears and seeing eyes. It looks like joy to the rejected. It looks like justice to the dismissed. Justice to the dismissed, verses 20 and 21. For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffers cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off, who by a word make a man out to be an offender, and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate, and with an empty plea turn aside him who is in the right. Those with worldly power often use it to get away with their schemes and their sins, and in so doing, they scoff at God, they scoff at others, they scoff at justice. But when we are transformed by the God of justice, those who never get a fair trial in this world, who don't have enough money or influence to be treated with justice, they will receive justice because we as God's children love righteousness in every form it takes. Transformation looks like holiness and true worship. Number five, it looks like holiness and true worship. Isaiah says this in verses 22 and 23, Therefore thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. The picture here is that Jacob, the head of the 12 tribes, is ashamed. He's embarrassed by his children. But there's a day coming when he will not be ashamed any longer because his children will not be walking in sin, but they will have new hearts. They will be made new. They will exalt and they will live in the holiness of God and to the praise of his name. And Jacob has nothing to be ashamed of anymore of his children because they're fulfilling what God has called them to do. Transformation, finally, number six, looks like humble reception of God's wisdom. Humble reception of God's wisdom. That's verse 24. And those who go astray in spirit will come to understanding. And those who murmur will accept instruction. This feels like the, the, most, the, the biggest shift that happens because so much of what we've read is people not listening to God's wisdom, but now there's going to be a humble reception of God's wisdom. As we proclaim God's wisdom and God's gospel in the world, as we do that in word and in deed, people by God's grace will no longer see it as foolishness, but as the very wisdom of God. And by God's grace, they will trust that God has a plan to transform all of his true children into his likeness. So here's the call. Trust God. Trust that God is transforming you, that God is transforming us, and he's doing it the way that he transformed his people because we're a part of this plan. So we trust that God is transforming us. How? Through disaster, through deliverance, through deep heart change that then leads to a dramatic shift, a dramatic shift that leads to fruitfulness, 
to hearing ears and seeing eyes, to joy for the rejected, to justice for the dis- to the dismissed. For ho- it leads to holiness and true worship. It leads to the humble reception of God's wisdom. That's what God's kingdom looks like. That's what we are to live into, into the beautiful picture that is painted here for us in verses 17 through 24. And if this is what God's kingdom is, this is the kingdom that he's going to bring into the world in fullness on the last day, then right now in this day, what do we pray? We pray, Father, let the transformational power of your kingdom come. Let your kingdom come, Lord. Let it come on earth as it is in heaven, as we trust you. Let's take a moment of silence to reflect on God's word, and then I will pray. Father, forgive us for not trusting that you can change us, and forgive us for trying to change ourselves. And thank you for laying us down in the dust, for humbling us and helping us to see our sin. Thank you for your deliverance that has come. Even in the moment when we thought it would never come, Lord, you have rescued us as your people through faith in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that your work goes deep in us, that you're not, you're not okay with us just keeping a set of rules, but you want to change us at our hearts, and you want to give us your spirit so that we can walk in your ways. So, Lord, guard us from false religion. Guard us from from a desire just to keep the external rules that we've created or that we think you want us to keep. But rather, Lord, let us walk in the transformational power of the gospel. Let us reflect the deep life change that you've called us to. Let us reflect your your character and your love and the, the great reversal that you're bringing about in this world as you set all things right, as you set them back to the way that they're supposed to be. Guard us from hard hearts that don't hear your word. Lord, and give us hearts of flesh that, that long to listen to you and that truly hear you. Lord, above all, just keep us walking in faith. Keep us trusting, trusting that you are about our transformation, that your ways are mysterious and strange, and yet they are also the same, the same as they always are. Lord, make us look more like you as we trust in you more. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.